Now, it's been more than a month since Russian forces first invaded Ukraine, and as the weeks march on, there's still no clear picture of how the war will unfold. Uh, On Friday, there was an emergency meeting of NATO countries which saw US President Joe Biden fly to Europe. The alliance has committed to bolstering military troops on Ukraine's eastern flank and sending more support. Now, NATO countries are also working to end Europe's dependency on Russian oil and gas, while Joe Biden warned the US would respond if Russia used chemical and nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So joining me to discuss all of this and more, the key issues, is Mick Ryan, a retired Major General who served in the ADF for more than 35 years. He's the author of War Transformed, the Future of 21st Century Great Power Competition and Conflict. Welcome back to Saturday Extra. Oh, good morning. It's good to be with you. Now, before we get to Ukraine, Mick, um, can we just briefly talk about the Solomon Islands and China? Yesterday, of course, there were these reports of a leaked document showing that the Solomon Islands government is in discussions with the Chinese about potentially having their naval ships stationed in the Solomon Islands. That's less than 2,000 kilometres from Australia's coastline. And I'd imagine these reports, we're certainly hearing that there's some degree of alarm in the defence community about this. Do you have any insights into how far along this deal is, how likely it is to come to fruition? Well, I think like many outside of the uh, defence community, um, I was a little surprised that this was so advanced. Uh, But I'm sure our intelligence community and defence department are across this issue. Uh, It's certainly an unwelcome development to have a large autocracy inserting itself into our region. Um, Certainly does not align with the values of Pacific nations or Australia itself. Should we have known about it sooner? I mean, it, it is it was alarming news. I mean, should we have known about it sooner? Should this have been something that was already being worked through, if not in public spaces, then certainly in private spaces in, in defence, the defence community? Oh, this has been something that's been talked about um, for some time, both within government but also uh, in open source. I mean, it's not a surprise the Chinese have been trying to cultivate influence in different Pacific islands through provision of uh, different supplies and aid to construct government buildings. So this actually isn't a significant strategic surprise. It's just part of a slow creeping effort by the Chinese to insert themselves into a region where the values that they bring really don't align with that of the region or our nation. Can we um, now turn to Ukraine? Of course, that meeting yesterday, Joe Biden in Europe, uh, an outcome of that is that NATO has announced this ramping up of the military presence along the con- along Ukraine's eastern flank. It's going to send four new um, battle groups into Slovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria and Romania. A, a bold move, that sounds, uh, from NATO. Um, it's just really NATO deploying military forces as tripwires to ensure the Russians understand that if they do seek to expand this war, NATO becomes involved pretty much straight away. There's no longer any debate. Um, if Russia goes into any of those countries, it will involve those NATO battle groups and straight away it will activate uh, the arrangements about def- uh, defending NATO members. So this is about containing any expansion from Russia? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the US and NATO do not want this war 
to escalate or to expand geographically outside the borders of Ukraine. And this is part of, not, not the only measure, but part of the measures that they are implementing to ensure that happens. It's interesting, isn't it, in the sense that the argument against a no-fly zone was that, in effect, it put NATO, it could bring, draw NATO into the war more and create a situation where you did have tripwires daily, potentially, um, where you would see Polish planes, for example, brought into the war to fight directly against Russian planes. Doesn't the setting up of tripwires now just on the edge of the borders do a similar thing? Uh, it's very different because uh, inserting warplanes into Ukraine would be putting them over a country that's not part of NATO. And remember, NATO is a defensive alliance which is designed to defend the territory and um, the rights of the nations which belong to the alliance, which those four countries are part of. So what NATO is doing now is just reinforcing the defensive nature of the alliance. Um, we shouldn't forget, too, that if a NATO aircraft over Ukraine shot down a Russian aircraft, that would give Putin a great gift. That would give him um, uh, a political victory. Uh, he's been saying to his people that NATO is trying to contain uh, Russia um, and that would just give him more evidence to sell this war in Ukraine to his people. And NATO and the US are trying to avoid that. I mean, talking about selling the war to the Russian people, there uh, uh, is a lot of attention today on Russia's announcement that they are apparently prioritising now the Donbass region. Uh, a senior defence official, of course, um, saying in the US, look, it's difficult to know whether this is a change in strategy, but does this is this potentially a way out in the longer term for Putin? I know this may, may well be wishful thinking, but if he narrows the focus of what a victory might be, doesn't that mean potentially he can extricate um, some of his forces more easily without um, losing face? No, I think your point is very well made. He, Putin has been, I think, searching for a while for some new theory of victory, which allows him to sell to the Russian people and his closest allies that the Russians have been victorious in this war. Um, the Donbass area was part of the original justification for the special military operation, which has turned out not to be too special. And the briefing today by Colonel General Rudskoy in Moscow really, I think, has reinforced that the Russians may now focus their efforts in the east whilst maybe not closing down their campaigns in the north, they're certainly digging in and going into a more defensive posture in the north. Where do you see the siege of Mariupol going? Uh, I'd imagine that in the defence world, people like yourself are very aware of the histories of recent um, recent uh, situations like that in Aleppo, um, like that in Sarajevo. We know generally how these sieges are conducted, at least by Russian proxies. Mm. Uh, so how do you strategize on the ground now to, to break that or at least avoid too many more um, civilian casualties? Well, I think the Russians are going to continue to seek to capture Mariupol. I mean, uh, General Runskoy in his brief today talked about um, these attacks on the cities being about causing damage to military infrastructure, equipment and people of the armed forces of Ukraine. I mean, that is a laughable claim when you are indiscriminately bombing and rocketing 
uh, civilian hospitals, theatres, bomb shelters in cities such as Mariupol. Um, Mariupol is a political target now. It is not a military one, and it is one that Putin and his generals desperately need to uh, point to some kind of success in this disastrous war. And so strategically, what are the options? And that's focusing on the Russian persistence around Mariupol, but strategically, what are the options for the Ukrainian side and for NATO to try and break the siege? Well, I don't think NATO have too many options. They've already made it very clear they're not going to have boots on the ground or in the air. Um, all they can do is continue to work on sanctions and, and pressure Russia and its suppliers. The Ukrainians also, it is a symbol of resistance for them. So for them, it has political significance. So I think we're going to see this fight for Mariupol um, carry on to its uh, natural conclusion. And whether that is some kind of stalemate or the Russians seizing it, I don't anticipate any kind of ceasefire there, except for maybe short-term ones to evacuate more civilians, which would be a good thing. The Ukrainians certainly seem to be winning the media war. Um, how much of what we're reading and hearing, uh, mainly sourced to the U Ukrainian side, about you know Russian forces being demoralised, not having the right equipment to, to um, deal with the terribly cold conditions, um, their tanks running out of petrol. Uh, I mean, how much how much of this is to be believed and how much is simply to create an impression that the Russians are, are failing? Well, I think it's a bit of both. There's some evidence that all these things are happening, but how much of it is happening and, and how substantial an impact on the campaign it will have yet is yet to be seen. I mean, Ukraine has been masterful in uniting their own people as well as uniting global opinion behind them through their amazing influence campaign. It'll be studied for years afterwards. But we must always seek other means of independent verification for some of these claims. I mean, in war, countries do what they need to do to survive. And Ukraine is implementing a very successful information campaign, but we should also seek other evidence for some of their claims. And one of the reports coming out today, of course, is that, uh, you know, I think we've heard a number of these stories now of Russian soldiers turning on their tank commander um, and him, you know, being killed by them because they're so furious at the conditions that they're facing and the number of lives that have been lost among their comrades. Is there any real evidence or intelligence around those kinds of kind of pocket mutinies happening? Um, little things like that happen in every war in most armies. I wouldn't put too much credence in it at the moment. There may have been the odd event where that may have happened, but, I mean, I would be surprised if that hadn't happened in every army in history. So... Uh, these are these are small events and they happen every now and again in every war. It's probably happened with the Russians again this time, but the impact that it will have on the campaign is pretty minor overall. And presumably this NATO meeting and the arrival of Joe Biden in Poland, it's all about ratcheting up the pressure, isn't it, on, on President Putin? You know, how would he have viewed this emergency meeting of NATO countries? Would it have had any impact, do you think, on his thinking? Um, I, I don't think he would have been shaking in his boots at the prospect of another um, talk fest by European meeting. leaders. <laughs> yes. um, I mean, he certainly will be briefed on it and he'll want to understand, in particular, 
um, how it might change the sanctions regime. I mean, that would be something he would be very interested in. He already knows that NATO is not going to put troops in. Um, so I think he would be more interested in, firstly, the sanctions regime, and secondly, is there going to be a step up in military aid from NATO countries and the US that Russian forces might seek to put more effort into stopping or at least reducing on Ukraine's western borders? Well, there's a limit, isn't there, to what Ukraine can do with that red line from NATO and the US that they're not going to put troops on the ground. Presumably there aren't... Um, masses of reserves that the Ukrainians have waiting in the wings for, you know, after a month's hard fighting to reinforce those people who are on the front lines. And whereas Russia, it does seem, you know, has, has that at least on its side if the war runs longer. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Ukraine's still a country of 44 million, however. Mm. Um, so, you know, it does have reserves of people that it could recruit and train. Now, uh, Russia is a bigger country um, with about 100 million more people. So if this was to go into the long term and we continue to see um, large-scale attrition, Ukraine will certainly hurt more than Russia will. But, I mean, Ukraine seems to be killing a lot more Russians and the Russians are killing Ukrainians. Um but even still, I think that uh, in the long term, Ukraine will certainly hurt from the number of its citizens, both you know, military and civilians, that the Russians are killing. Given that, to what extent does President Putin um, face uh, a challenge to persuade his people to stay in this war, to stay, to stay with him? How hard is it to keep the news bubble uh, around uh, Russian citizens so there isn't, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we're not necessarily looking at a wide-scale revolt, but certainly a kind of a, a, a drop in morale or support for, the, for any more military action. Well, I think what he will be doing, and we saw this in the Rudskoy brief today, is continue this narrative that Russia faces a direct threat uh, from the West, from NATO countries, which over the last 20 years have continued to move closer and closer to Russia's borders. I mean, remember, this is a country that was invaded by the Nazis and had 20 to 30 million of its citizens killed. I mean, we need to understand that that is part of the strategic culture of Russia, is never allowing that to happen again. So that's the kind of narrative that I expect Putin and his leadership will continue to roll out to the Russian people. Just finally, what are we looking at, Mick, in terms of what for you would be a key strategic development um, beyond this point, going into another week's fighting? Ha have, are the lines fairly set at this stage or is, is there some, um, some trophy of particularly significant value that the Russians have in their, in their crosshairs? Well, I think, um, once again, I'll go back to this briefing by Rudskoy today, but it's something that a few of us have been watching for a while, is the war in the east. I mean, the, the Donbass region, uh, the Luhansk, Donetsk, Oblasts, have been a core part of Russian war aims. I, my sense is we could see um, reinforcements focused on Russian forces in the Donbass area, uh, and potentially a large-scale advance to seize a city such as Dnipro um, in the coming weeks. That would 
present a couple of major problems for Ukrainians. One, it would take a lot of their territory, but two, it could potentially surround a large part of the Ukrainian army. That would be a significant problem for the Russian president, uh, sorry, the Ukrainian president and the Ukrainian military. I mean, both sides are talking occasionally about negotiations uh, and certainly there are some kind of high-level meetings among not necessarily the leaders but among uh, their intermediaries. Uh, it, uh, how significant are they? Is that is that real at the moment? Well, they're certainly occurring, and I think it's important that they continue to take place. I mean, you need to keep talking to your enemy. At some point, the war needs to end, and the only way that ends is through um, these kind of negotiations, war mm. and through political decisions. So it's important they take place, even if the pace is slow, slow and, and the advances are minor, they need to continue. Indeed. Thank you so much. Mick Ryan. Thank you. Mick Ryan there, a retired Major General who served in the ADF for more than 35 years. His new book is called War Transformed, The Future of 21st Century Great Power, Competition and Conflict. Up next, Australian and India's possible education exchange. <laughs> 